Jared Oden, and to Bonnie Bone, who's at the controls. I've been your host, Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. And you're tuned to KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno. And up next is the Free Speech Radio News. This is a special broadcast from FSRN for Friday, November 28, 2008. Prison labor is every U.S. corporation's dream. Cheap labor, no sick leave, no time off, no holidays, and employees can be easily replaced. For human rights activists, however, it's a nightmare for the very same reasons, but on the other side of the coin, forced labor, no unions, low pay, and no protection for employees. The U.S. has used or currently uses prison labor for everything from holiday coffee for Starbucks, cutting airplane components for Boeing, Game Boys for Nintendo, equipment for the war in Iraq, shrink-wrapping mouses for Microsoft, making dentures, down to sewing lingerie for Victoria's Secret. It's a multi-billion dollar business, and today, FSRN brings you an exclusive documentary, Prison Labor, Made in the USA. I'm Aura Bogado. Stay tuned. Questions surrounding whether prison labor should be used sometimes can't be summed up with a simple yes or no answer because many questions fall somewhere in between. Take some of these into account. If we don't want China to do it, should we turn a blind eye here in the U.S.? Would it be okay to use prison labor if the workers were paid prevailing wages and had union protection? What if a prisoner wants to work? Should they be free to do that? Do prisoners actually learn skills that they can use on the outside? And if so, will companies actually hire them once they're released? What's the actual impact on the economy? Do non-prisoners lose jobs when prisoners work at a cheaper rate? And how much can Americans really stomach knowing their products that may have at one time been made overseas are now being made in prison here in the U.S.? Reporter Karen Miller takes a look at some of the history and the current obstacles that encircle prison labor in the U.S. As part of a growing workforce, 44-year-old Calvin is finishing up his day at a meat processing plant in Hagerstown, Maryland. He spreads down a cutting table and describes a day in the life at the plant. We start work at 5, 5.30 in the morning. And when we come in, my job is to, to find out what everything that we have to do throughout the day. I'm the floor. I'm the floor leader. Each table has a table leader. I have to inform them if we're doing stew, if we are making uh, center cut chops or chuck our steaks, as well as what, what, what type of patties that we're making. Calvin fits the typical employee profile, black and male. He talks about his career track. I've been working in this plant since 16 years. Been here 16 years. I started off as running a patty machine as a laborer, and I worked my way all the way up to the floor, the floor leader. Sitting at a computer, Gina, a single mother of one, inputs insurance claims forms. She's been doing it for the last several years and says it's a lot better than one of her past jobs in a different department. Um, it was it was kind of boring for me, you know. When I got there, all I did was um, like stuff envelopes. You know, you do paper, you know, stuff envelopes for like PDS places, you know, companies like that. And um, once I got through that job, they hired me to do a newspaper job where 
you have a list of keywords that certain companies are looking for. You read the newspaper. If you see that word, you cut that article out, paste it on a piece of paper, and fax it to them. She says one of the perks of her job is that she gets paid for not only typing, but typing fast. We also get our base pay, which is our base rate for um, just coming to work, you know, depending on how long you've been here and what your position is um, as to what your base rate is. So it's all your keystrokes throughout the day plus your base rate. Gina's boss says she tries to keep the environment worker-friendly. Most of them have been with us for many years. They earn a good salary. We don't have them scheduled breaks. They're not forced to sit there and work until they can't take it anymore. If you need to get up and go to the restroom, you need to get a cup of coffee, you need to heat up, eat your donut, you know, you do it when you're ready to do it and then go back to work. Gina may be able to take a break, but neither her nor Calvin get sick time, benefits, or time off. And some workers like them are usually paid less than a dollar an hour, even though their labor helps state and private organizations make billions of dollars. Can I ask you how long you've been in jail, LeBron? I've been locked up for 27 and a half years. And can I ask you for what? For first-degree murder. Calvin and Gina are not your typical employees. They're both part of the estimated 90,000 prisoners that work in the U.S. prison labor system. Yeah, I live in, in a cell. It's, you know, um, the A building is where I live, and it's right up, you know, right up the sidewalk right here. It's just a great big building. You walk in, it's a lobby with the officer's station, you know, what we call the bubble, the officer's bubble. And um, then there's a door on the left and a door on the right, and one is the, the right side is the west side, the left side is the east side, and I live on the west side, you know, wherever you're going. They open up the slider to let you in, and you go in. The 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution may have freed the slaves, but it didn't free prisoners. The article reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude exist within the United States, except for a punishment for crime. Prison labor, the 13th Amendment, slavery, and the racial makeup of jails today all have a common link. Before the Civil War, laws governing slaves were called slave codes. After the Civil War, the slave codes were rewritten as black codes, which outlawed legal activity for many African Americans. Ryan King is policy analyst for the Sentencing Project. A lot of the offenses that seem to be highly um, criminalized for African Americans in the late uh, middle and late 19th century tended to be crimes that now we would sort of scoff at like vagrancy and loitering and, and, and um, uh, sort of being uh, out and about uh, um, being out in the streets in areas after dark. King says the potential power shift of having the slaves freed and the need to maintain the old racial order contributed to the need of having them locked up. There's no question that Southern politicians and many Southern residents had a great deal of fear of um, social destabilization in the wake of, of um, the emancipation from slavery. And so um, criminalizing a lot of the uh, types of conduct that were seen to be um, more commonly committed by African-Americans and certainly targeting the enforcement of those offenses among African-Americans um, very much uh, was indeed an effort by the state to reassert control over a population that um, there was a great deal of fear. But there was another factor, economics. Prior to the Civil War, most penitentiaries were white. But as more African Americans were being thrown in jail, the racial makeup changed and more of those convicts were put to work. Penitentiaries used convict labor for government production and contracted the work out to private businesses to operate within the prisons. 
prisoners were also leased out to private bidders to be housed, fed, and worked as slaves. This system of convict leasing lasted for decades and provided one of the harshest labor systems America had ever seen. Convict labor was used to rebuild the South, but Heather Thompson, professor of history at the University of North Carolina, says it benefited those around the country as well. So even though it was,、uh, we think about we think about the convict leasing system as southern, it does have northern roots. One of the reasons that the South uses convict labor. Is that、uh, northern businesses invested in rebuilding the South, and from their point of view, it made a whole lot more sense to use convicts for labor than bringing in, say, immigrants, which is what you know the northern situation was full of immigrants, and they knew that immigrants could try to agitate for higher wages and、uh, try to agitate for unions, and so from the northern businessman's perspective, convict leasing was a good idea. So it's a very complicated history.、Um, Very tied to the end of slavery, but by no means unique to the South. Convict leasing was largely eradicated by the 1930s for a couple of reasons. First, there was a growing outcry against the inhumane treatment of the convicts, and second, unions began to fight against the system because it depressed wages. But there was another reason as well. Again, Heather Thompson. Because of the depression,、uh, the economy、uh, was in such trouble that there was a lot of、um, motivation among government officials to also to restrict convict leasing. So it's important to realize that there was a time when we really didn't have as much prison labor. For decades, laws restricted the use of prison labor and selling prison goods across state lines. All that changed, however, with the Justice System Improvement Act of 1979. In this act, Congress enacted legislation to change the laws on the sale and shipments of prisoner-made goods, products, and services. Soon, Unicorn was born. Heather Thompson. So we have, for example, at the federal level,、um, a tremendous amount of products being made that、uh, that are sold. In fact,、uh, the federal prison.、Um, Uh, industry now is known as Unicor. It's sort of the brand name, and Unicor, their their trade name was、uh, where the government shops first because it was providing so many things. For example, it made furniture,、um, it made、uh, it made new stainless steel products, thermoplastics, modular furniture, Kevlar reinforced products. It made products for the military. Um, it had a whole textile line that it overhauled in the 80s. So this is a very profitable、uh, enterprise at the federal level, but an enterprise with a lot of problems as well. Tom Petersick is a prison rights activist and an economist. He says having the government be the federal prison's only buyer breeds trouble. The key problem with federal prison industries and prison industries in general today is that we have granted those industries a monopoly. And that monopoly has exclusive access to the labor force, the incarcerated labor force, and it has exclusive access to government markets for the sale of inmate-produced products. In addition to that, it is exempt from labor law, it is exempt from taxation, and it is subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer. The Justice System Improvement Act also gave states a boost. Again, Heather Thompson. 
So, for example, in New Jersey, their Department of Corrections got a new marketing slogan, which was, and you thought we only made license plates, uh, because, in fact, they started to make a whole lot of other things. Um, and they began. They were making everything from desks to school furniture to uh, you just can't imagine. that. In fact, you can go on any state website and see the amount of products. Etta is in the women's prison in Jessup, Maryland. She's the clerk of a sales shop where she started off as a seamstress. Etta has been in jail for over 30 years. I like getting up early in the morning, and I like the different variety of people that I have to work with. There are all kinds of people here with all kinds of talents and all kinds of problems. So not only am I a clerk, I also help them socially um, get back into whatever it is that they need to get back into. I'm, I'm more of a, a big sister to a lot of the people here. She talks about the inventory. Trousers and pants, the jackets, state highway um, attire, those um, neon vests that you see on the highway. We make those. We make dietary uniforms. We make um, hospital gowns for different state um, facilities, things of that nature. As the products began to grow, so did the problems. Prison rights activist Tom Petersick says since prisons usually don't have competition with buyers and outside workforces, it can set the stage for the exploitation of the prisoners. Any economics textbook that talks about uh, monopoly will accent the relative power of the bargaining uh, components, the buyer and the seller and so forth. So if they're both relatively powerful, then you'll see that the person over whom the monopoly is exercised will have some power against the monopolist. And things might look more or less like competition. But where there are huge power differences and where there is particularly social opprobrium and isolation, you will see huge abuses of the group over which the monopoly is exercised. And prisoners fall exactly into that category. They're hidden from view. They're uh, disliked by the community in general. And the monopoly is free to behave. There's no one else for the inmate to turn to. Nowhere to turn also means no unions. In the 1977 case, Jones versus North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union, the U.S. Supreme Court removed court protection from prison labor organizing. Thompson explains. They, did, they had held neither the First Amendment rights uh, that other workers would have, um, nor the Equal Protection Clause that um, unions enjoyed. And so as a result, there are no unions in prison, and this is it, tremendously significant because it means that workers, for example, if there's toxic fumes in the, in the place they're working, they have no basis upon which to challenge that. If they're getting ter terrible wages, they have no basis upon which to challenge that. They also don't have the basis for other things. Take, for instance, sick time. At her data entry job, Gina knows no work means no money. Well, if somebody's sick, usually we relay messages, you know, amongst ourselves, the supervisor. If we have someone that lives in our housing unit and it doesn't feel well, she'll, you know, say, can you please let Lancey know that I don't feel well today, so I'm not coming in. She won't get her base rate. She won't get her keystrokes. And for some prisoners, not going to work is not an option either. In some states, it's mandatory that prisoners work, and forced labor is just that, forced. If you don't work, there are consequences. Vince was serving a life sentence for robbery. After 10 years, he got his sentence overturned. While in a penitentiary, he worked at a sawmill. Life for those who refused to work was a hard one. Well, the whole is just how it sounds. It's a place you don't want to be in. 
uh, it's a place where your privileges are taken away from you. You have a loss of privileges. Uh, your TV, your radio, your little hot plate. And in my case, you know, they wouldn't put anybody in my cell. And, you know, I thought that made it even worse for me because a lot of times people have somebody to talk to or play dominoes or cards in the cell or whatever. But the hole basically is a place where, you know, people are angry and frustrated about their conditions and they flood the toilets and they set fires and throw toilet paper out on the tier. They scream and shake the boss so much that you feel like you're about to have a nervous breakdown because nobody will be quiet. They squirt in urine and feces on the guard when he goes by. People will do anything for attention or whatever when their mind is idled. And it's just like somebody saying, shut up all that noise. I found that in the end, that silence can drive you just as crazy. You know, and people need each other. And so a person would rather have a bad relationship with you with some sort of foul communication as opposed to no communication or human contact whatsoever. If being in the hole is not enough, the pay or lack of it may just do it. Gina says she has one of the best jobs in her prison doing data entry. A good batch right here is like this is about an average batch. I probably got like about $2.92 for that batch. And it took you about an hour to do that batch? You about two hour, hours. Two hours, Okay, yeah. okay. And so so that would be about, um, is it $8 a day? Usually it's about eight, you know, a good, a good day would probably be like $10 a day. Even some in jail know they're not getting paid what they're worth. Etta from the soda shop. They, they can't get better quality for a cheaper price than they do right here. Because what we make here is no comparison to what you would have to pay for on the outside. You know, we make $3 a day where in the free world you may have to pay somebody $12 an hour to, sell, to sew a particular garment. So I think that, you know, we fare much better, and the quality of work that we put out is absolutely great. Prison rights activist Tom Petersick says in federal prisons, there's never enough money to go around except for the employees. One of the things that's interesting is that every year, because the employees, the civilian employees of Federal Bureau of Prisons are federal employees, they get a roughly 3% increase in their hourly wage rate every year. Well, that increase in their wage rate alone is greater than the total wage that is paid to the incarcerated worker in that same system because the incarcerated worker isn't protected. And this has gone on for decades, but the Bureau of Prisons never has enough money to pay an, an increase in wage to the incarcerated worker while the civilian worker gets this raise routinely every year without complaint. There's always been low pay and there's always been holes. But the biggest shift prison labor has seen over the last couple of decades is who is hiring the prisoners, private companies who are looking for cheap labor. Again, Heather Thompson. What they call a cost, a cost competitive and motivated workforce, um, and they get a great deal. So we have all kinds of companies that now use or use or have used uh, prison labor um, and we could you know we could name some of them some of them Kmart Honda um, McDonald's Hawaiian Tropic products Burger King Victoria's Secret Allstate Insurance 
um, Nike, you know, there's just all kinds of them. And sometimes they're using services, like, for example, phone a phone bank system. They're using prisoners to make the phones or to... And sometimes they're actually using, the you know, the physical labor of prisoners. Some of this work is done in private prisons. In a private prison, the prisoner is sentenced by the state, but is jailed by a private company. Thompson says labor done in these types of prisons can be even more troubling. Who's going to be in charge of the medical needs of the prisoner? Who's going to be in charge of safety conditions? Who's going to be in charge of work hours? Who's going to be in charge of any of this? Uh, and the answer is, we, you know, there's very little regulation. So private prisons haven't even uh, higher, uh, they're even, it's even more problematic because then we don't even have any state regulation whatsoever uh, to really count on. Safety and regulation, or the lack of it, has always been an issue for those working in jail. Vince was in a federal prison for over 10 years. This guy, his name was uh, uh, Vanderbilt, or his name was Vanderbilt. They started calling him Vanderhoof because his hand was cut off by one of those big machines, and uh, they scooped his hand up and put it in some ice and took it back and they actually sewed his hand back on, and uh, a couple of his fingers he could move, but they saved some of his hand and put his hand back on. So people started calling him Vanderhoof. So I remember that guy's whole right hand was just wiped off, whopped off by one of those big saws from him not paying attention. Uh, those saws are so big, just the sound of the saws on can unsettle your spirit after you've been around them for a little while. Even if you've been there working in the factory for a couple of years, it's like something you don't get used to, hearing a big whine of those things. I mean, to hear a big saw, it's just something that messes with your mind. Like, I know not to get near that. Was there any, like, kind of safety training or different things that they had you do there? I mean, did you feel safe working there? Yes, they gave you safety training as far as the goggles and things, what to do and what not to do, the do's and the don'ts of the OSHA training and things like that. But, again, it still was a, a penal colony, a penal institution. And so safety uh, kind of was reduced to, you know, do a smart to stay alive. So how do consumers feel about using prisoners to make products? To find out, I went to the local mall. Shopper Sherita Woodrow felt prison labor was okay under certain circumstances. I think when prisoners work to maintain their own facilities and to maintain themselves without having to use government funds in a way or to decrease the amount of government funds being used, I think that's a good thing. Shopper Lenise Harris was divided on the issue. So in terms of, I mean, what do you think? Should we use inmate labor? Should companies use inmate labor? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on really how you look at it because we're such a consumer-driven society and we don't realize how things are being made. I didn't even know about the prison labor until you told me. But I guess I would much rather knowing that someone in the United States that's in prison is trying to make it within the four walls is doing it versus, you know, child, children's labor, I mean, children labor across seas where they're making clothes and not getting paid for it either. Now, what about the whole idea that having prisoners do do, you know, work inside jails that takes away jobs from people on the outside. Well, that's a thought, too. I didn't even think of it like that. I mean, but they have to have something to do with inside those walls, too. 
you know, besides, you know, going, I know they offer classes and things of that sort, but, I mean, I feel like that they need to be productive, too. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword because, I mean, it is um, a cop-out for these companies who could pay someone a lot more, you know, and if they're going straight to the prisoners because they know they can pay them cheaper, then it is a cop-out when someone outside who is unemployed is capable of doing a job. So I see it's a double-edged sword, you know. Um, <laughs> now you're really stumbling me. Um, Everybody wants something, and they always want it for free. Even when you go and get something done in your house or whatever, you're trying to find the best person to do it. So, I mean, it is a cop-out for these companies because they have the money, and they can do better than that, you know? So I guess that it makes my other statement invalid. <laughs> I didn't even know Macy's was one of those companies that was doing that, you know? So if you, I guess if you educate the public more, then they may be a little choosier on how and where they shop and how they do things. Okay. <laughs> Another shopper who didn't want to be identified gives prison labor the thumbs up. So you think that it's okay for them to do that? If, if they feel like it's okay, whatever works for them. A lot of people who are against prison labor mm -hmm. say that um, in the United States, we say we don't want China using their prisoners to do to do forced labor. Mm -hmm. And but oh, keyword forced. Forced labor. Okay. Labor. Right. Okay. That's, that's all. Forced labor. The labor is not forced, right? In some states, actually it is. And the biggest proponents of making people work can be other prisoners. Again, Etta from the So Shop. There are a lot of people who, who come to jail and just want to lay around and do absolutely nothing. And we have a place for those people where they do absolutely nothing, and it's called C-Wing. However, the people that do want to work show up for work every day. And you have few who don't want to work, and, and those people are dealt with accordingly. Some say prisoners are so adamant about working because there's nothing else to do. Over the last several years, education and drug rehab has been replaced by another way to reform prisoners, work. In 1994, the federal grants to send prisoners to college were abolished. Again, Heather Thompson. It's interesting because they did this despite strong resistance from the Department of Education, and even though all studies suggested that that was the best way to stop people from committing crimes again and to allow them to enter society with a meaningful skill, with a meaningful uh, a, a trade. Um, and yet again, we were in a much more conservative time. We did not like the idea of educating prisoners, even if it meant that they were going to commit fewer crimes. And it was kind of ironic because um, at the end of the day, only one-tenth of a percent of Pell Grants even went to educate prisoners. Gina went to school to learn computers. She was offered a computer tech job, but was not able to take it because she was turned down for parole. I wasn't going to go back to Arizona right away because I know it's, um, it's a good position for somebody like me. You know, I've never had a real job out there before I got locked up. And um, being able to do it, you know, being able to have a job sitting there waiting for me, ready, doing something that I'm, you know, that I really love, I, I was definitely going to stay and give it a chance. Training in school is okay for Ron Blackwell, but work is not. Blackwell is the chief economist for the AFL-CIO. Same reason that we would oppose slavery, because people have compromised rights, uh, we would oppose uh, um, forced labor uh, or, in, or, or uh, imprisoned labor. Because uh, people, of course, in prison are forced to work. And this is something that we are opposed to. Labor should be free. 
If labor should be free, prison labor not only comes with a cost for some, but benefits for others. Heather Thompson, professor at the University of North Carolina. There is a business of building prisons, which you know that is prison labor is sort of differently construed. That is very profitable. You know, a lot of money to be made. Then there's a prison labor. Ordinary people who want jobs get jobs in a prison, right? They can, they can, you know, free world workers. They become guards. They become maintenance workers. They become cooks. They become whoever in the prison. So that's a kind of prison labor. And then there's the labor of the prisoners themselves, and all of those things are dependent upon not solving the crime problem, not keeping people out of jail, not keeping,、uh, you know, getting people off of. Drugs, for example, since so many of the crimes are drug-related, and so forth. As America grapples with its ever-growing prison population, demand for the labor, goods, and services that these prisoners do and could produce will have to be grappled with as well. If history is an indication, then the story of prison labor in the U.S. is far from over. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Karen Miller. You've been listening to an exclusive FSRN documentary titled "Prison Labor: Made in the USA" with reporter Karen Miller, produced by Vinod K. Joes, technical production by Antonio Ortiz. This documentary is made possible by Pacifica Radio, community radio affiliate stations, and listener supporters. I'm Aura Bogado. We return to our regularly scheduled newscast on Monday. Have a great weekend. Bargains abound at the Zenfest Holiday Sale in Sebastopol. An intriguing mix of handcrafted gifts, garden and wearable art, silent auction, Japanese lunch, and much more. Sunday, December seventh, nine to four, at three seven three North Main Street, Sebastopol, across from Safeway. Creative spirits of every age can make prayer flags for peace at this benefit for Stone Creek Zen Center, a nonprofit organization. For details, please call seven zero seven eight eight seven one five one four. Or check StoneCreekZenCenter.org. And you are listening to ninety-four point.